Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. What next for Rishi Sunak's Rwanda bill? I'm Lucy Fisher. This is Political Fix from the FT. And with me in the studio today are Political Fix regulars, FT columnist Miranda Green. Hi, Miranda. Hello, Lucy. I feel we've not been in the studio of late, so I'm so happy for such to a see long you. time. I know. Thank you for having me back. And Stephen Bush. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Lucy. We'll be joined later by the FT's Peter Foster. He'll be here to tell us more about his scoop on the dire state of the finances of many British universities. But first, the roller coaster of the Rwanda bill. After victory in the House of Commons, Rishi Sunak is adamant that the Lords will not thwart his plans. There is now only one question. Will the opposition in the appointed House of Lords try and frustrate the will of the people as expressed by the elected House, or will they get on board and do the right thing? It's as simple as that. Right, well, I want to throw forward and talk about where this bill goes next, but let's just recap where we are, um, Miranda. He did get the bill through the Commons unamended, but not unscathed. You know, we saw 11 Tory MPs rebel against it, vote against it, a three-line whip, a flagship government policy. We saw two deputy Tory chairmen have to quit uh, and another ministerial bag carrier in the business and trade department. This is problematic, isn't it? It's not been a good week for him, even though the headlines have been pretty good saying revolt melts away. Yeah, I completely agree with your summary. His authority is really badly dented. And I think there's a kind of attrition that happens in politics when a leader sort of has to keep going back and having these negotiations, then sort of defiant stance against their own backbenchers and then squeaking it through. Every time that happens, you kind of sacrifice a bit of your political capital. And, you know, Sunak, I think, although he has absolutely got his bill through the Commons, is damaged by the experience. And actually, he gave this quite strange press conference the morning after the bill survived. And in a, in a sense, it was trying to do two things really badly. And I thought it was a really good example of where it's left Sunak's leadership. And he was both trying to kind of revisit, as we heard in that clip, the kind of Brexit language of the will of the people. Mm -hmm. You know, the unelected peers were very reminiscent of, you know, those front pages accusing the courts of being the enemies of the people and the kind of populist rhetoric that Boris Johnson's team used in the final stages of the Brexit fight. But at the same time, he also sounded quite sort of robotic mm -hmm. and weakened in terms of his voice, his his projection of his own power in a sort of almost a kind of Theresa May type feel about it. I don't know if you shared that sort of view, but repeating lines endlessly ad nauseam, we'll stick to the plan, mm -hmm. we'll stick to the plan. bit like Mrs. May's, nothing has changed, nothing has changed. And, you know, there is this weird atmosphere in politics where you can just almost visibly see people's authority start to sort of bleed away from them. And it does feel like that with Sunak. So you're absolutely right. The bill is through. It's not out of the weeds yet. It's not home dry in any sense because it's got to try and get through the House of Lords where there are loads of lawyers who are really upset about this idea of the UK 
contravening international agreements. So it will go probably go backwards and forwards between mm-hmm. the, the Lords and the Commons again. But also, I think you're right. Politically, this is a problem for him, even though those weird groups of rebels on the right who call themselves the five families in that weird kind of mafia language, they did sort of melt away and agree to do as the police required them to do on the night. There's loads to unpick there, and I want to come back to what those right-wing rebels might plot next. Um, And as it happens, I do agree with you that um, Sunak was very robotic in that press conference and saying some of those lines, which clearly... Um, debut of of campaign slogans without a lot of conviction. So, Stick to the so plan. So scripted, didn't so you think, scripted. in a way that doesn't go over well. And this idea of, you know, back to square one, for me, doesn't wash. I, I, it also didn't make sense to me. In, in what way would we go backwards? Um, Stephen, keen for your reflections on, on that, but also throwing forward. What do you think is going to happen in the House of Lords? You know, it's going to be a couple of weeks yet till it's introduced. And we know that timing is of urgency for Sunak to try and get this bill through, get flights off the ground. Can you give us a sense of, of the sequencing of of how long things are going to take? Well, timing-wise, I mean, and to be honest, this links back to the, some of the problems with Rishi Sunak's press conference, right? Nothing much of interest will happen in the House of Lords. There may be a single, are you sure about this Lords Amendment and will be sent back what we call ping pong between the the two houses when you know the house of lords puts an amendment in the house of commons takes it back out but it but it will not be an extended round of ping pong if if there is any any changes at all you know so the labor party in the lords will let it pass because it's obviously in their strategic interest to be able to say, you know, you've spent X number of hours, X number of money, and the only people you've successfully sent to Rwanda uh, are government ministers, right? <laughs> um, and, and that was actually not just the problem with Rishi Sunak's press conference day, but in general, the problem with a lot of what Rishi Sunak does politically, and this was true when he was fighting this trust, and it's true when he fights Keir Starmer, is that this seems to be a man who who doesn't ever sit down and work out that his opponents will try and win too. So he kind of continually goes like, hey guys, can we talk about my glass jaw some more? Obviously <laughs> the House of Lords is not going to block this for lo- loads of reasons. Okay, then, but, 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 yeah. but yeah. Bear, bear with me, no. uh, indulge yeah. me. Yeah. Let's just pause for a moment on what we think that the Lords will do because I think there are people like Alex Carlyle, senior barrister, who uh, you know are concerned that this is contrary to international law. It also wasn't in the Conservatives' 2019 manifesto, which means the peers do have a little bit more manoeuvre room to, to to play with this and try and amend this. Yeah, and I think if there is a silver lining, it will be that the civic society, as it were, appointees to the House of Lords, former counter-terror people, you know, people who are there because of their service to the legal profession, some former Conservative ministers will want to amend and, and weaken it. Mm-hmm. And some of those um, experts are crossbenchers. Yeah. So I think they have a sort of special mm. respect from many members of the public because they're not seen to be playing political games in the same way, are they? Yeah, and I think it also, it's it, it's hard to suggest and some of these crossbenchers, you know, don't care about the security of the country. M- many of them on that aspect have much more impressive CVs than the, the Lords Ministers from the government will have, let alone than the one that the Prime Minister has. I, mean, I was talking to someone who's relatively recently become a, a working peer, and they were saying the, the thing which is wonderful about it, but also terrifying, is they said, you know, you know when you're giving your speech, someone will stand up and they'll go, well, actually, when I helped write that, or actually, when I was, you know, in charge of that. So all of that will be difficult and kind of personally conflicting for some of the ministers putting it through the House. But I actually think in a way that the Lords uh, arena is going to be much more difficult for the main opposition than it will be for the government because 
simply put, they will be attacked from their left for facilitating it passing. Then, of course, once it's passed, of course, then the question of flights, whether or not they're actually going to take off the various flaws in the bill become more of a problem. It becomes a government issue. But I think really, actually, the the most interesting thing in the Lords will be how the, the Greens try and finesse their criticism of Labour, mm. because they, of course, will vote against it at every stage. And the you know, Labour peers will do what they have tended to do, which is basically amend and then acquiesce. Well, I think that's really interesting and quite an unorthodox take in some ways that the Lord's stage will be more um, complicated or difficult for Labour um, than the government. Um, Miranda, you're, you're dying to get in. Do you agree with that? Well, no, I mean, I think it's, in terms of what will happen, it's absolutely on the money. And in fact, I was talking to a member of the House of Lords recently who said, well, of course Sunak will get his bill. And as, as Stephen said, you know, Labour will have to facilitate it. And there'll be some political embarrassment there. But I think we might be underplaying the problems for Sunak on the way to that. Because, you know, as we've discussed, having this fight over a policy that's gone badly wrong and where he has backed himself into a corner of his own volition draws attention not just to those power and authority issues we were discussing, but also to what a bad strategist he is, you know, this is like a game of chess where he can't see the next step, mm-hmm. let alone the end of the game and how it might conclude. But I mean, I would say his opponents in the Tory party also suffer from that. I mean, what yeah. the rebels this week thought they were going oh, to no, achieve no, you see, it's is a impossible genius plan to, to tell. resign what did they on think the was Tuesday in order to abstain on the Wednesday. It's madness. And if they pro- push their point, then get a general election that they don't want to have now. No, no, it's, it's crazy. But, no, because what you don't understand is voters really don't like parties that have failed to stop the votes, but they love parties and have failed to stop the votes, but have got their internal divides up in everyone's business, <laughs> uh, tedious push notifications from the BBC about MPs you've never heard of during your, your evening shop. Right? Voters love that. Um, <laughs> they, they, they're really fond of it. And it's actually really clever to wound but not kill a prime minister <laughs> who you have no, literally no, me- no there is no process for the rebels to get rid of Rishi Sunak, right? So so you think that Lee Anderson is, is a genius here by yeah. resigning uh, in order to back a, an amendment to the bill that didn't pass, but then abstaining on the final vote rather than voting against it and joining the, the most hardline rebels. Yeah, look, Machiavelli had nothing on this guy. <laughs> okay, we, we've, we've got to come back to, to Lee in another episode. Um, Miranda, so let's imagine we do, we do see Sunak get the bill through the Lords with a battle that might yet cause problems for Labour. Is he going to get flights off the ground in any significant number? What about the role that the civil service have been put in here? Because one part of this that I think has not been discussed enough is the fact that Matthew Rycroft, the permanent secretary at the Home Office, has had to amend civil service guidance, instructing officials now to ignore international law, ignore these Rule 39 orders from Strasbourg judges, ordering flights to be grounded or removals to be deferred, if a minister decides that that is the direction they want to go. That does put, you know, officials in a fairly uh, invidious position, as Dave Penman, the head of the FDA union that represents officials, has said, doesn't it? Well, yes, it does. And you would have thought that a kind of baseline assumption for the UK is that everyone involved in the process of government obeys the law. So, yes, that is kind of a moment to mark that that's been diverged from. And I think also, as well as that, on a sort of global level, you've got the spectacle of Paul Kagame of Rwanda himself saying, this UK business can't drag on forever and maybe we should just let you have your money back because, you know, as you've said in your stories this week, they've already had £240 million of UK government funds. There's another £50 I think, to come. 
And if Kogame himself is running out of patience with the plan, you can see how the whole thing sort of unravels. So it's extremely questionable whether anybody will ever be sent to Rwanda under this scheme. And I may say, I thought very notable for me, one of the, the headlines from that news conference he, get, he gave was his refusal to put a date on any flights taking off. Absolutely. So it's become a sort of symbolic policy in every sense. And the problem is it's a, it's a policy that symbolises his lack of grip over a topic. And it's very interesting also on this question of how important immigration is to the voting public. Clearly, the spectacle of people dying at sea is intolerable. And so the problem does need solutions. But in terms of kind of automatically thinking that a certain set of voters are so anti-immigration that they will back anything because it's about immigration, is extremely sort of politically crude. Okay, so big headache for Sunak. Stephen, can I put to you, my thought is, if, and it is a big if, even one flight gets off the ground to Rwanda, it then becomes a problem for Labour, doesn't it? Because the question will immediately be, right, there are now asylum seekers in Rwanda. What would Labour do? And I think if Starmer were to say, well, we'll bring those people back to the UK. That will be anathema to those people very concerned about illegal migration. The idea of bringing more asylum seekers onshore, even if it's a handful, I think will go down badly. And if he says, well, we'll see, or those people will stay in Rwanda for the time being, that's an implicit acknowledgement or acceptance, isn't it, from him that Rwanda is a safe country and therefore, you know, asylum seekers can be removed there. And I just think were he to end a policy that is actually underway rather than theoretical, it would be a gift to the Tory right to say, well, look, you know, we had it up and running, but it wasn't given any time to sort of see if it, the deterrent effect worked. Labour kind of crashed it out. They're not serious about dealing with this problem of our borders and illegal migration. Um, so I struggle with it partly because, to be honest, I find the hypothetical so hard okay. to <laughs> believe. You know, it's a little bit like if, if I were to win the London Marathon, what would that mean for my life? I think, so you can see that the Labour Party has has consciously shifted from going, it won't work, which was their preferred argument for a long time. They kind of didn't want to get into the specifics of, you know, is it any good or not? To a and, more, is it, and is it ethical? And is it ethical to a more we just don't like the policy and it's a waste of money position. Now, of course, that is a position with, as you say, risks. However, broadly speaking, I just don't really believe that a day in which the word Rwanda scheme is anywhere in British public life is now good for the Conservative Party. The big question in terms of the polls at the moment is not, will there be a Labour government? It's, can the Conservative Party avoid a historically bad defeat by getting that group of don't know who, when we look at their sort of issues profile, are fairly obviously traditional conservative voters. And then people who say they're going to vote reform, but then in every election, they seem to just stay at home. Can they get those people to vote conservative? And I think that it probably would help the Conservative Party as a message to get those voters to come home rather than stay home, mm -hmm. if they can say the Labour Party would stop or reverse an actual flight. Interesting. On the subject of polls, just a final word from you, Miranda. On that um, Monday morning, splash on the Daily Telegraph, the, the Tories' sort of home journal, saying that the party's headed for a 97-style wipeout, that, you know, Labour's on track for an 120-seat majority, that every seat won across the Red Wall from Labour in 2019 would be lost, 11 cabinet ministers to lose their seats instead of Jeremy Hunt. Um, what have you detected about the psychological impact that MRP, that huge poll of 14,000 voters, has had on the party? 
Well, there's a wonderful way in which, uh, you know, three-letter acronyms and, you know, the, the talking up of some polls as more scientific than others does spook people in politics. But Can you remember what MRP stands for? No, I absolutely can't. It's a bit like that Monty Python sketch where they say, bring in the machine that goes ping, you know, and it just makes people sort of believe in the science more. And I, I say that because the, the polling aside, the way that the Telegraph, as you say, very important with the Tory audience, used the data to tell a story around Sunak's disastrous leadership, I think is really significant because they're painting the Conservative leader as doomed and as taking his troops you know, over the trench into the line of fire in a, in a way that will result in a, in a massacre. And I think that's incredibly bad psychologically for the Conservative Party where they are now. We heard this week in an FT scoop that university finances are in a terrible state, with many of them at risk of falling into deficit. Peter Foster, the FT's public policy editor, is here to tell us more. Hi, Peter. Hi. Um, You've spoken to the boss of the sector's main lobby group, who blames it on the sharp decline in foreign students. She said that many of them had been put off by the government's hostile rhetoric. Tell us a bit more about that and how much international students, perhaps weakening demand there, is putting uh, the sector in jeopardy. So there are a bunch of factors going on here. There's been a currency crisis in Nigeria. You've seen the government wrapping international students into the migration debate. Some kind of quite hostile positive moves to remove the right of actually only master's students to bring their dependents, their family members. Undergraduates never could, but all of that signal gets picked up in big markets like India. So you look at the, the Indian press, you see those stories picked up and amplified. And you ally that to the fact that some of the data show that, particularly from India and Nigeria, two big markets, really surprising drop-offs. And that has spooked the sector. So Vivian Stern, who you mentioned, the head of UUK, which is the big sector lobby group, 140 of the universities, giving us some really strong quotes, telling the government to back off, to stop sending out these very negative signals about the sector, which on the one hand, the government lionizes by saying science superpower, Mm. more Nobels than any other sector, look at us, rah, rah, rah. But on the next minute, it's blaming the sector for being flabby, low-value courses, too many migrants, we need to keep migrants down, etc. There's very mixed messages. And I think the second piece of the puzzle is that the UK uh, sector is increasing reliance. So 20% of its income now comes from international students Home fees, the 9,250, have been frozen effectively for a decade. And that was kind of okay till inflation came along. But suddenly costs are going up, but prices are flat. And so the sector estimates that those fees are now worth about £6,000 in real terms. So they're running a £2,500, £3,000 loss on every single student. So they have to go to the international sector to get foreign fees to cross-subsidise. So... On the one hand, they can't put their price up. On the other hand, their other route, which is international student, is being hit by this anti-government rhetoric. And by a tightening international market, that's another piece of the puzzle, is that we saw a big growth during the pandemic because we kept our borders more open. And the US and Australia, two big competitive markets, and Canada shut their markets down much harder than we did. And so when those markets opened up and our universities were competing with US Australia and Canada again, they've also found that they're losing out students to those markets. So you put all that together and it's a tough picture for the universities. 
And just how tough? Let, let's just drill into that. Are there universities at risk of going bust, do you think? Well, there's a really interesting question. The answer to that question is yes. There are universities at risk of going bust. Uh, You hear on the grapevine that at least one is in talks with the government. The bigger question is, would the government allow a big university to go bust? In theory, the answer to the question is yes. When the sector was opened up and commercialised, the idea was there would be moral hazard, that the market could take over and that a university that wasn't performing would go bust. I think that's an interesting question because a big university is often a big employer in a local area, has a large estate, lots of buildings. Would the government actually let one go bust? Because the one that's going to go bust is most likely, you know, it's not going to be Oxford and Cambridge or York. It's going to be a university that's lower down the food chain, probably a university that has a lot of students who go to university for the first time. I think socially very difficult to shut it down. What do you do with the faculty? In theory, the university is supposed to have plans to place all the students in other universities. They're supposed to have a, a, a plan to do that. What would you do if a big university shut down? Where would those kids go? What would it say to the rest of the world about the viability and the uh, and the strength of the UK sector? So I think that is a question that the government may find itself confronted with over the next 12 months if more can't be done to prop the sector up. My personal bet is, and this goes against what ministers will privately tell you, no, no, we'll let one fall over if we have to, but would they really? I don't know. I have my doubts. Miranda's probably got views on that, but I have my doubts. Yeah, let's hear from you, Miranda. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think they feel they have to say, hold that line because of the moral hazard point, but actually what people are really talking about is will there be quite a lot of mergers? And that could be merging courses, but it could also be merging institutions because we've actually already had examples, particularly in the larger city regions, of very successful university mergers. You can rationalise that way. I mean, where I really strongly agree with Peter is that if, if institutions do go under or even if whole courses go under, it's going to be the ones in third-tier organisations, which are actually, in some cases, very highly rated, excellent courses, where they're already having to make two-thirds of the academic staff redundant because they haven't got the students in there because the students have all been admitted to higher up the food chain institutions that have relaxed their entry requirements to get their hands on more fee income. So there's been a kind of terrible shakedown already in the sector. And I spoke to somebody who said they thought there were five to eight universities in trouble. Wow. Lots of people getting and in touch with me saying they're having to interview for their own jobs again yeah. in, in departments so that, so under pressure. So that's actually the, the bigger problem here is that as this stuff feeds through, it's probably not big institutions falling over making front page headlines. It's about bigger class sizes, less professors per student. Actually, even quite, you know, towards the top end, I talked to a a professor at a very prestigious university who said he was marking 80 essays this year, not 30, Mm -hmm. that he was doing five years ago. So, So when you're reliant on international fees and they're expensive, you have to remember that EU students now and international students, they have a choice, right? And if the student experience starts to deteriorate here because of essentially everyone stretching their budgets, that will feed into the system. You know, mm-hmm. social, you don't get away with it yeah. now. It's the social media. There's all sorts of ranking sites yeah. that people go to. And it, and it harms the reputation of the sector. And, and Pete's a story we worked on together last week was around York University lowering the entry requirements for some overseas students, uh, allowing people in to do undergraduate courses with B 
BBC grades at A-level or equivalent, uh, allowing people in to do postgrad courses with two, two degrees in their undergraduate. But that was only lowering it for overseas students. So there is a political dimension here that we could see a backlash from voters, from UK citizens, that they are, you know, being discriminated uh, against in favour of these international students who pay higher fees. Yeah, absolutely right. And actually, those narratives are already gathering force and they're going to get bigger because of the demographic bulge that's coming through. So about 750,000 18-year-olds trying to get a place at university this year, it'll be a million by 2030. The university sector would say, without international students, you don't have universities. You know, so it's no good attacking international students because they're literally keeping the show on the road. So if you're not prepared to pay higher fees or at least start to index link the 9,250 to inflation, and you're not prepared to allow us to attract international students by putting in all these hostile policies, if you're not going to help us in that regard, then you have to let us go somewhere. Yeah. Right? And and I, and I, I do think that there needs to be a much more open debate about what you do about the sector because it's one of the jewels in the crown. It's yes, one of the few things yes. that actually goes well in the United Kingdom at the moment. Yes, and, and you point in... out Sunak, you know, talks about the UK being an R&D superpower. This completely underpins that. The question I want to ask you is what would be different under Labour? Oh, well, there's a good question because Labour doesn't really want to bite the tuition fee bullet. I think you would see some different things going on under Labour. I think... I mean, Stephen would have views about this, but I think Labour will try and make better access to maintenance loans, which haven't kept up with inflation, to enable kids from less advantaged backgrounds to afford to go to university. Because right now, with the cost of living crisis, the maintenance loans, even for those that qualify for the full loans, aren't covering the full show. So I think you can do that around the edges. But fundamentally, the Labour Party is going to have to face the fact that it can't do nothing. It won't get to the end of the five-year parliamentary term, in my view, without doing something more fundamental to address the problems. And I've spoken to university vice-chancellors with good connections with Labour who do think they will see stuff in the first spending review that will address this problem. Whether that's over-optimistic or not, I don't know. Well, should we we ask Stephen? So the thing is, when you talk to people in the Labour Party, they also give the, oh, well, we... Yeah, we've thought a lot about what would happen if, you know, a university keels over in our first couple of weeks in office. And then they also talk about, oh, well, the important thing would be finding places for students. I just think the contagion among lots of Labour MPs, if a Labour government went, we're willing for these institutions to fail, because it's not just safe Labour seats. If you think about the seats that a Labour government would have had to win, people are not going to be relaxed, you know, about if you're, you know, the MP for the Stokes constituencies or Stafford about the idea that you just let anchor institutions go to the wall. But of course, for all the reasons you set out, the Labour Party is privately very divided over tuition fees. And also, you know, the other policy challenge here is broadly speaking, British students are now choosing more expensive courses than they used to. British students are taking STEM courses more than they used to. And essentially, the the way, you know, in, in the period when the 9K was actually worth what it was in 2012... One of the things that happened was arts courses cross-subsidized STEM courses. There are fewer and fewer arts courses to do the sub- subsidy. So mostly in the Labour Party, you hear very similar things to what you hear from conservative politicians about how, you know, but... But higher education is a public good, right? Mm-hmm. That's the other thing here, right? We treat it like a market, except they can't put the prices up. Mm-hmm. So then you, you know, say, well, you're going to fail, you're going to fall over. Well, in a competitive world, you'd be able to put your prices up. But they also at some level, 
we've stopped thinking of higher education, university as a public good, right? If we want to live in a knowledge economy, if we want to have a workforce that's fit for Keir Starmer's fastest growth in the G7 supply side, et cetera, the government at some level is going to have to think about what it wants to contribute. And so is industry and business, right? So the sector will also say, actually, we want you know, to think about the ways in which industry who receive these graduates, who make money from these graduates, also contribute. But right now it's become a very much kind of disgruntled consumer conversation where actually the country needs this sector to work. Yeah. I, th- I, think, the, I think that they don't have an answer to the tuition fee question, the student finance question in the Labour Party, which has been a nightmare for every single political party that's touched it, as we know. But I think they do have a completely different philosophical take on what universities are there for and their role, as Peter said, and as Stephen has said, as regional engines of economic prosperity. Last word to you, Pete. I agree with all of that. And and, and I hope that Labour has the courage to detoxify the bait, because I think the really sad thing that's happened, the bonkers thing, in my view, that's been allowed to happen, is that the universities have become a pawn in the kind of culture war. And that is incredibly short-sighted and destructive. You see pieces in the Daily Telegraph saying the best thing would be happen if the sector fell over. You know, actually, young people want to go to university, right? The people sitting around saying, oh, everyone's fed up with university, low-value courses, they're all old people, right? We want our kids to go to university. Well, guess what? So do everyone else want their kids to go to university. Well, I think that uh, speaks to a theme you tackled this week in your excellent column, Stephen, about the UK not necessarily valuing the things it's good at. Peter Foster, thanks for joining. My pleasure. Well, there's just time left for the political fix, stock picks. Miranda, who are you buying or selling? Well, I'm going to sell Hamza Yousaf, the First Minister of Scotland, leader of the SNP. Not only is he unbelievably beleaguered by all the scandals he's inherited from the Nicola Sturgeon era, but also he's just given an interview in which he says that he's even doubtful about the word national in the name, in his party's name, Scottish National Party. I mean, you know what he means, right? It's nationalism has bad associations, but maybe they should all think about a bit more about that. I think this attempt to portray Scottish nationalism as civic nationalism, or I suppose cuddly nationalism, even he might have come up with against the idea that, that it's a bit of a tricky one to pull off. Great. I think I think a few other of us have also sold him in recent weeks and months, so his share price continues to tumble. Stephen. So I'm going to sell James Cleverly. Uh, as listeners will know, I have a lot of James Cleverly in my portfolio, and I'm afraid I have to announce a major write-down of the future value of the stock. <laughs> um, now, there are a variety of reasons. Uh, the biggest, of course, is that he is now Home Secretary, and I think what we've seen over the course of this week is essentially anyone who either voluntarily, Robert Jenrick, Suella Braverman, or involuntarily, James Cleverly comes into contact with the Rwanda policy, uh, it's a form of leadership kryptonite. I, I basically think every single person who's had a named walk-on role in the last week of conservative intrigue, their political prospects have sharply deteriorated. So, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm afraid I'm just dumping all of my James Cleverly stock. Taking the L, I am accepting the, you know, I'm asking for sympathy in a difficult time for <laughs> the Bush Trading Fund. How about you, Lucy? I'm buying uh, Rachel Reeves. I'm pretty sure I already have her in my portfolio, but um, she's been at Davos on the Magic Mountain this week. And in a really sassy move, she's had this kind of 
West Coast VC tech bro breakfast with Andresen Horowitz. I think that's how you pronounce the name of this venture capital firm. And in particular, that will really sting for Rishi Sunak because he's been super proud that he's managed to persuade them to choose London as the new outpost for their overseas office. And I think the fact that she's been chowing down on croissants um, in the mountains will be something that really gets under his skin in Downing Street. It goes down really badly with the Labour left, doesn't it? Seeing their leadership at Davos, but it's obviously the sensible thing to do, the sensible yeah. place to be. Well, is it? I'm struck, uh, I don't know about you, that Kemi Badenoch had decided not to go. I think as business secretary, quite a curious move, but maybe I thought she might be thinking the same thing if she has her eyes on the prize of the leadership, that it doesn't look too good to be hobnobbing with the global elite. Well, when you're on the way up, networking is absolutely crucial, isn't it? Maybe we should say unkindly that on the way down. It might not be the same <laughs> set of calculations. Slash and burn. Uh, Miranda, Stephen, thanks for joining. Thank Bye. you. That's it for now. My thanks to Miranda Green, Stephen Bush and Peter Foster. Political Fix is presented by me, Lucy Fisher, and was produced this week by Philippa Goodrich. The executive producer is Manuela Saragosa. Music and audio mix by Breen Turner. The FT's head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. We'll meet again here next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.